rocketed as a baby from the exploding planet Krypton. Kal-El grew to manhood on Earth, whose yellow sun and lighter gravity gave him fantastic superpowers. In the city of Metropolis, he poses as TV newsman Clark Kent, but battles evil all over Earth and beyond as Superman. Superman. Hello, and welcome to episode number six of Superman in the Bronze Age. I am your host, Charlie Niemeyer, and, well, this month we really don't have too many emails. Um, I, In fact, I only really got one this month, and uh, I do want to thank Michael Bradley for sending it in. I'm not going to read it. It's pretty quick, uh, but he was he did thank me for... Uh, for one, for mentioning his new show coming up, um, and for also uh, putting together that Christmas episode. So I hope everyone liked that. Um, I had a lot of fun putting that one together. Um, before I get started on my reviews for the month, or for the week, sorry, um, I would like to point out to everybody uh, that two new shows have started, uh, well, are about to start. Um, and I want to make sure you go over to the Superman Podcast Network website at www.fortressofbailey2.com slash supermanpodcastnetwork for the latest episodes of all the Superman-related podcasts out there in the interwebs. As of January 1st, John M. Wilson's Golden Age Superman show has started, and uh, Michael Bradley's show, as I mentioned, I believe it's The Thrilling Adventures of Superman, will be starting shortly. So I urge you to go over to that site and check out all the new episodes of all the Superman podcasts coming out lately, and you know, that's where you'll also find episodes of this show. So um, I guess uh, without further ado, I'll just get started with the reviews. Uh, our first comic we're going to cover is World's Finest 200, finally. Uh, I've been promising this one for about I don't know, three episodes now, and one we did, I didn't realize it, it didn't come out in wasn't a January 71 issue, and then of course last week's, or not last week's, but last episode was a Christmas spec was the Christmas special, so uh, obviously didn't cover it there. So we have World's Finest Comics number 200, uh, cover date of February 71, uh, was released right around December 10th, 1970. It's got a really cool looking Neil Adams cover. And uh, today, this guest star is Robin, the Boy Wonder. And this Neil Adams cover looks really cool. You get this alien with a really, if you ask me, a pretty cool-looking costume other than the uh, high-collar thing. I'm not really a big fan of the collar thing and the pointless uh, armbands. But uh, Robin looks cool, really cool in this. And Superman is basically looks like he's withering away. So it's really pretty cool. Um, before I keep going, I do want to apologize. Um, I'm getting over a cold, and uh, so I hope I, I might be a little stuffy this episode. That's why I apologize, but uh, I've already delayed putting this episode together uh, by a couple days trying to get over this, so I wanted to get this recorded, so hopefully it's not too big of a problem. So anyway, World's Finest number 200. The title of the story is Prisoners of the Immortal World. It was written by Mike Frederick, illustrated by Dick Dillon and Joe Gaella, edited by Julie Schwartz, and even though it's not printed in the in the issue, Superman is created was created by Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster, and Robin was created by uh, Bob Kane, Bill Finger, Jerry Robinson, the whole kit caboodle. 
So we start off, Clark Kent is reporting for WGBS-TV at Hudson University, where Robin is, well, while Robin is currently a student and, under his disguise as Dick Grayson. And they're having, they're, he's doing a report about what looks to be a demonstration, an Army ROTC demonstration. And uh, Robin is out in the daytime, which is weird, trying to keep things civil. When suddenly there's a fire, uh, someone firebombs the ROTC building. People start running in every direction. Clark calls cut uh, and has them shoot the fire and everything that goes on to make sure they cover they get it for the next broadcast. They cover the national national guardsmen being called in, and for some reason, while the fire didn't cause them to change, the fact that the national guardsmen being on site which could enrage many of the students who have a problem with the current war going on, which, if you recall, this is 1970, so this issue came out during Vietnam. There were lots of protests to that war, so this is just kind of an example of it. But uh, the National Guardsman is a reason for Clark to change to Superman, and we don't see him leave, but we see him land amidst the soldiers with a letter in his hand, and apparently he reveals that well, not apparently, but he does, reveals that it's an order from the governor who feels that the local campus police can handle the situation and asks for the National Guardsmen to return to their base. So following orders, they leave. However, two students, Davy and Marty, who are brothers, and they almost look like twin brothers, but maybe that's just the art, uh, are fighting about whether or not uh, we should have an army or whether or if the fact that we didn't have an army would, wouldn't even be in the war. They call Robin's attention. And uh, he comes over to see what's going on, and they start getting into the fight again. But Robin, of course, is caught in the middle. And apparently, he's shorter, but apparently no human can hold off two fighting brothers. Superman spots this and goes to try to help them cool down, uh, picks up the boys, and Robin tags onto his cape as they fly off to go someplace, quote-unquote, far enough away. However, as they're flying off, suddenly they appear to be teleported. Uh, every molecule in their body feels like it's being wrenched apart and pulled in quote-unquote inexorably to an unknown destination like iron filings to a magnet and we see them twirling around this is actually a pretty cool image other than the fact that Superman's legs look really stubby and we shift across the galaxy to the world of the magnetic body grabbers uh, which we don't actually get a name for, just that it's uh, a sanctuary that they are in a sanctuary city on a jungle planet, where space bandits hide out, stash their loot, and play pay a fee for immortality treatments. And as these two brothers that have invented this process continue talking, we learn they uh, have been alive for 154,687 years. And what they do is they take super beings from all over the galaxy and absorb their life energies to allow them to exp uh, expand their life or what's the word I'm looking for? Lengthen. That's the word I'm looking for. To lengthen their lives. Uh, their last super being, uh, apparently his name is Kartal, and I'm guessing it's a he because you can see his chest, uh, only sustained them for about 1,249 years, and he has finally died. So now all of the beings on the planet are starting to get older. So they used a tracer machine to locate a power source, and 
discovered Superman. So they decided to transport Superman to their world. Unfortunately, they did bring Robin and the two young students along with them. And I say young, but these are all college-age, quote-unquote, kids. I'm 30, so I guess I can call them kids. Um, and they all land on the planet using their uh, mental effort and their mental powers. The two aliens are able to knock out Robin and the students. Uh, but Superman, of course, proves a little more difficult, so they have to combine uh, their powers, and he eventually succumbs to their thought waves. As they, as they decide to set up Superman in the power trans-immortalizer, uh, one of the aliens uses his mental powers to mind-port the human uh, people away out into their jungles, say that they will dispatch wild game hunters after them, to track them down, of course, offering a fee for doing so. Apparently, we get a glimpse into the mind of young Dick Grayson, and while he's unconscious, he's thinking back to the day when his parents died, and how Batman helped him and found him, and together with some training, uh, he became part of the dynamic duo of Batman and Robin. Uh, however, recently, uh, Dick Grayson has left Gotham City and Wayne Manor and has started going to Hudson University and sometimes uh, shows up as Robin to help solve crimes and other cases. And uh, by the end of his memory jaunt through his past, he wakes up on this alien world and it looks really cool. We have a half page, well, almost two-thirds of the page uh, splash. That really shows off this weird alien fauna, although some of it looks pretty Earth-ish. Uh, there's giant mushrooms, uh, but the plants are all colored weirdly and grow in weird angles and shapes, so some of it's really cool. But they all come to, and the brothers almost immediately uh, get back into their fight. And Robin actually refers to them as jackasses which I actually think is pretty cool. Um, I don't have an illicit tag on this, so I, and I'm trying not to use bad language, but uh, I don't know how bad Jackasses is, but remember this is a code-approved book in 1971, or technically 1970, so just the fact that they're using Jackasses in it, I would think I'm actually surprised it got through, but what can I say? So Robin tackles the two, and they figure out that they need to find Superman if they want to get to Earth alive. And let's see, which one is it? Because I cannot tell. It looks like Marty decides that, uh, offers the suggestion that they should split apart. And that way at least one of them is bound to get out of live. Uh, but Davy suggests that they stick together. That way, if they're attacked, they can defend themselves. So... Robin completely agrees with Davy and says that they need to be togetherness, or they need to be together, and immediately leaves them to walk on the trail while he takes the tree. So, even though they're together, they're kind of apart, which is weird. Um, swinging from tree to tree, Robin disc uh, does see the some aliens headed out to find them on uh, what looks like it's supposed to be a horseback, but this thing uh, looks like it only has three legs. might have a fourth one, you just can't see it in the artwork, and it has a beak that kind of looks like a horse, and is carrying three alien beings on it. 
Uh, Robin swings down to try to grab the two brothers. He grabs Davy, but Marty is too far away, so uh, he tells... Actually, he doesn't tell Marty to run. He thinks it, uh, but Marty... But before Marty can get away, uh, he is stunned by one of the alien's mental blasts. Um, Robin, using some of his the gymnastic skills that he learned as a trapeze artist, um, flips around and is able to knock all three of the aliens off their uh, quote-unquote horse, as well as knocking all their mental bands around from out from off from around their heads. Davy uh, hops down from the tree and figures out that these bands are used to control mental powers, and decides to see if he can control the beast. So using his, uh, so he puts it on and tells the, or thinks at the creature for it to leave, and it runs off. Uh, the creatures, of course, start aging because for some reason, and of course we learn later, or actually we've already learned that it's because of the fact that, uh, I guess they haven't hooked Superman up to the immortalizer yet. So all of our young heroes put on these mental mental bands and head towards the city which looks like as uh, one of them mentioned looks like something out of a science fiction movie which I can completely agree with and there's one part at the edge of town that has a dome that Robin mentions looks like it's a center of activity so they decide to head there meanwhile inside the quote-unquote big place near the edge uh, the two alien brothers are working to try to get Superman hooked up to their machine before he can w awaken. Uh, what we see is Superman wakes up realizing he's inside the contraption and breaks free really easily. You think this story is going to be over in five seconds now. He busts through the wall, flies out, uh, they start shooting at him, and so he wrecks their cannon before he suddenly feels like he's being hit by a mental blast, which unfortunately knocks him out and after a little bit he wait he awakens again in a very similar picture to what we saw those was it two pages ago yes literally two pages ago and he's again re-imprisoned and this time he's too weak to escape and uh, look above above we see that the three human heroes are watching what's going on and we see the two aliens that they recognize because I guess they got a glimpse of them before they were knocked out. Uh, they see the two aliens that caught them, as well as two others who are armed guards. So Robin uses a battering to knock out the armed guards real quick, and then all three of them tackle the other two aliens. Robin taking one, and the brothers taking out the other one. Robin goes down to free Superman, but as Superman shouts that, uh, shouts to warn Robin that these guys are really powerful and that they were easily able to capture him after he broke out the first time. Robin reveals to him that he never actually broke out, that it was all a mind game, and he's actually been in the room the whole time. This appears to really tick Superman off, and he decides he's going to break free, and with some super speed, or super uh, strength, and some super flight, and... What appears to be a silent scream, Superman literally busts out. And he busts out in a cool looking two page spread. Um, you see Robin and the brothers watching uh, with their eyes open, and one of the brothers actually has his mouth agape 
uh, seeing Superman do his thing. And uh, it's really a cool art. Um, I'm going to come back to this in a minute, though, when I come back to my notes. But he busts out. And the two aliens that we mentioned from before uh, come to and realize that Superman has escaped. So they try to attack him with their mental mind bolts again. But this time, Superman's ready for it. And using his own super willpower, uh, fights back their mental bolts. And we actually see, and I, I'm hoping this is more of an artistic interpretation, but we look, we see what looks to be uh, a pinkish lightning coming from Superman's head against their blue mental blasts. Uh, Superman's willpower actually fights back, and he is able to not only outthink them, but knock them out and knock their mental uh, bands off of their heads. Robin asks Superman how he plans to punish them for their crimes, and Superman mentions that their overdue deaths will soon over uh, will soon overtake them, and that is punishment enough, which means literally Superman is leaving them there to die. Uh, I'll get back to that. Um, the boys, the students, realize that Robin didn't force them to work together, uh, but they saw that they um uh, but the while well, the other one mentioned sees that they act they had to act together uh in case they uh needed to fight for what they believed in meaning that the two brothers saw the, where the other one was going from their original argument and they make up the four of them return to earth and we conclude with a Clark Kent news broadcast saying that um the greatest tragedy that can befall a nation is brother fighting against brother. And uh, now, now they're the two are smiling at each other, and the whole world, as well as Hudson, well Hudson University and the world, can learn from this example. And that if they did, that this world would be a much calmer place. And he signs off his broadcast. And that's the end of our special 200th issue spectacular, which if actually. It is issue 200. They didn't add any extra pages. It's it's a basically a story featuring Superman and Robin. So um, I get it is somewhat special because it is Robin. Robin used to be in the book all the time with Superman and Batman, and now he's kind of doing a solo team up, if you want to put it that way. Um, a few things I did notice about this issue on page one, um, and and also on the final page, and every page we actually see him as Clark. Clark keeps the spit curl that he usually has when he's Superman. Instead of his hair being combed back like we normally see, uh, the spit curl stays down. So that kind of can hurt the secret identity thing. Also, um, we do see Robin out in the daytime. And, boy, I tell you, um, this might have been somewhat normal for back then. Uh, but for someone who's got more modern sensibilities as far as how the comic book characters act, this is very strange because you don't see... Batman or Robin act, uh, doing anything in public. In fact, uh, for the most part, I'm, actually I haven't read any recent Teen Titans to see, but for the most part, they really tried to hide away from being being shown in the press nowadays, so we wouldn't see Robin at all. But it's kind of cool to see him doing this. Um, I'm surprised how much clout Robin seems to have considering he's just a teenager in tights, kind of. But anyway, uh, page two, like I mentioned before, it's kind of weird to me that the bombing of the ROTC building 
doesn't cause Clark to change to Superman. I mean, there's a fire and everything. Uh, that doesn't cause him to change. But when the National Guard arrives and could cause a problem with all the protesters, that's when he springs into action. It just seemed a little weird. Um, page four, when the heroes, when all our main characters, our main heroes are being teleported away from Earth, uh, the way Robin, uh, Superman is flying, he's carrying the two teenagers. Robin is hanging onto his cape, but literally looks like he also is flying. So it's like he's lighter than air or full of helium or something. Uh, the art's a little wonky on that, but I could see how Robin could hang onto the cape. Uh, page nine, again, like I mentioned before, Robin calls the brothers jackasses in a code approved book. Kind of crazy. Um, and I did double check the cover. Yes, it is a code approved book. Uh, page 10. Uh, Robin mentions that they need to find Superman, like I mentioned before. Uh, he actually points out that they took Superman this way and that they need to find him. They need to head that way if they're going to find him. But um, literally two pages, or not two pages because they had their, you know, his whole history origin recap. So a few pages before, uh, the alien guys actually mind-ported the heroes out of there. So they didn't take Superman anywhere. They sent the human guys away. Uh, so that's kind of weird, but you know they got to figure out a way. I don't know. I guess it's a page thing or something that they kind of let slip. Um, but I do like how Robin decide. Robin says, "Yes, we need to stick together." Now you go over there. And I'm gonna go this way. It's just <laughs> kind of a tricky thing to do. Uh, page eleven. Uh, the way Davy is able to figure out that those mental band, what those mental bands do, is pretty quick. Uh, they saw two guys do stuff, but I'm sure they couldn't. He couldn't have figured out too much, and I don't know how he was able to see that they were using their mental powers to. I don't know how how they knocked out Marty and how they were controlling the animal, but he figured it out pretty quick. And for that, Robin and Marty should be thankful. On pages 19 and 20, uh, again, that's the two-page spread of Superman flying out. And again, I thought it was pretty cool considering it's a, well, from the, for the 19, for early 1971, uh, it looks really cool. It, uh, he's got a weird look on his face, like he's kind of constipated and having problems pushing it out or something. But he is, he looks pretty pissed in this issue. And uh, there's, li uh, there's lines around his face that kind of want to point out, um, it almost looks like he's supposed to be shouting. Uh, it's kind of they're kind of used the way Ed McGinnis uh, uses uh, lines in some of his books on Superman and Bat Superman, Batman, and now in the Hulk stuff, where when something big is happening with someone's muscles or something, he puts these little uh, lines to indicate that you know he's flexing or something. And they're kind of using the same thing here, which is interesting. And page 22, which is the last issue. Uh, oh wait, one more note about the two-page spread. Well, the whole thing looks really cool as a whole. Um, a nitpicky thing is that they got the Superman belt. It's it's kind of squarish. And as anyone who follows Superman knows, Superman's belt buckle is usually a perfect circle or kind of an oval, depending on the artist's take on it. Uh, in the movies, it was kind of oval. Kurt Swan draws it as a circle. Uh, Jerry Ordway drew it as, draws it as a circle. John Byrne draws it as a circle. Dan Jerkins drew it as a circle. Tom Grummet drew it as an oval. Um, and it 
goes on from there. So everyone has a different interpretation of it, but this one is kind of square. I don't mind ovals and circles. Those are cool. I'm not a fan of the square, and I'm not a fan of the Superman essence buckle, Mr. Hubert. I understand what he was doing. He's kind of helping to tie it in with the new movie that came out when he did that. I didn't like it in the movie. Don't like it on the comic books. And I'm glad that um, Shane Davis didn't do that again for the Superman Earth 1 book. And that's all I'm going to say about that because I'm not covering those books. So anyway, page 22. Um, like the page 1 and the early part of the story, we get kind of a preachy part of the story about the whole... Uh, how about the war and how everyone has different sides of, the, of their views and everything. And I can understand why they're doing it. It's just kind of preachy. Um, all, all in all, though, I thought this was a really cool issue. It actually kept my attention. I like this one issue better than I like the, the two-parter with the Flash. Um, and according to the final issue, the final page blurb, it looks like Green Lantern is going to be in the next issue. So that should be pretty cool, I hope. Um, I'd like to point out, um, I believe, and I haven't had a chance to double check this yet, but uh, it's kind of cool that they did this. Michael Frederick, I believe, is actually the guy that was writing the Robin backups in Batman, I believe it was in. So he has a lot of experience with Robin and with Hudson University, so it's kind of cool to have him come in and do the story. Uh, and of course, tell Robin's origin. Um, another cool thing about this issue, before I go, before I move on, is uh, in the middle of the book we have the letter column, um, and actually one of the uh, one of the letters is written by a gentleman, uh, a guy named Buddy Baker of Louisville, Kentucky. Now I didn't do much research. I'm not sure if it's the same guy, but I did find out because I had him confused with Buddy Blank. It becomes IMAC, uh, the OMAC guy, IMAC, sorry. Uh, this Buddy Baker, uh, apparently Buddy Baker is also the name of one of the uh, one of the famous NASCAR drivers. I don't really follow NASCAR, so I'm not sure if this is the same guy, but uh, it would be kind of cool if it was. And uh, we actually see uh, E. Nelson Bridwell, even though he's not really the editor of the book, but he's the guy that writes, reads all the letters, uh, mentioned something about the fact that Kurt Swan will be inking his own pencils in the World of Krypton story in the February issue of Superman, which, of course, is what I'll be covering next. But before I get to that, um, the next part is actually they have an interview, and I don't know who wrote this. Couldn't find any information about it. But we actually have an interview with Superman, Batman, and Robin talking about uh, the first two issues of World's Finest. It's written like an interview. Um, they talk about a little bit about the origin of the book, about some of the people that were in the book, including uh, Aquaman, uh, Johnny Thunder, uh, Star Spangled Kid and Stripesy, uh, when the Joker showed up, Dan the Dynamite, Sandman, uh, and Crimson Avenger, and all kinds of people. And uh, so they kind of talk about some of the cool stuff, about uh, mention some of the highlights. It's basically what this is, is mentioning a lot of the highlights, like uh, the Penny Plunderer's story in issue number 30, the North Pole Crimes in number 7, I believe, uh, if I'm reading that right, uh, 144, where Batman reveals his identity to, to Jimmy, um, and all sorts of cool stuff, and the Robin Olsen team. But um, 
yeah, that's what that's what, it's kind of a special thing they did. I I kind of like this. It's kind of cool that they would actually do an interview between the three characters. It's kind of a nod to the fact that they were in it but aren't actually real. The images they use are the, some of the stock images. Uh, Superman one looks like uh, an old Kurt Swan image, uh, literally an old one. Uh, might have been looks like it might have been taken from an old issue where he was inked by I'm not sure who, but during uh, while he was working on the Jimmy uh, Olsen series before he became the main Superman artist. So it's kind of a it's it's not like his more modern stuff. Uh, the Batman image I don't know who drew that, but it looks kind of cruddy. It's all weirdly rounded. Definitely looks like a Silver Age version, like. Uh, I'm thinking it's a Carmine Infantino Batman. And I'm not saying it's cruddy because it looks like crud. It's just, it's not the image of Batman that they were going for at this point in 1970. They were doing the Neil Adams kind of darker, more realistic Batman. And this looks more like uh, the kind of inspired by Adam West's version of Batman. The Robin image, though, looks pretty cool. It's uh, just his head. On all three of them, it's basically just the head, but it's uh, you know it's Robin as we would nor as we normally see him, even in this issue with his hair, you know, just looking like Robin. He's not looking mad or happy or anything, just kind of looking normal. And I'm just blabbing on about this, and I really need to move on. So that's World's Finest. Uh, next up, we have Superman 234, uh, the second part of the big new Superman for 1971. Um, we got two stories in this book. The first one is, um, well, first of all, this is Superman 234. Uh, came out February 71 with a cover date of December 15, 1970. And I'm not sure how they did this or if this is just not completely accurate on uh, DC, on uh, the Mike's Amazing World DC, but it's kind of weird that only five days later this issue would come out after World's Finest. It's kind of a You'd think they'd be weak, but I don't know. Maybe something was messed up with the holidays, or maybe they just didn't do it that way back then. But anyway, this has another really cool Neil Adams cover. I'm really a fan of it. Um, we do see Superman falling from the sky while that sand creature that we saw at the end of last issue is flying overhead. Um, it looks really cool. It has a really awesome angle, and it's kind of a weird perspective you wouldn't normally see in a Superman book or on a Superman book. Um, the colors are really eye-grabbing. I mean, it's a lot of, uh, we've got Superman's colors, you know, the red, blue, and yellow. we got the Sandman kind of a light yellow with some white and light orange mixed in. But the background is like really bright reddish orange. And it looks really cool, if you ask me. It's very eye-grabbing. Um, and they actually do some shading on here. Um, I don't know if it's just part of the ink work that Adams did or what, but I can actually see this is, um, I think the art on this cover looks better than the one on 233. Uh, by that point, maybe Neil Adams had more of an idea of the fact that these were going to be big deal issues, so he kind of tried to up the game a little bit, but it looks really cool with the shading and everything. And um, like I said, it looks really exciting. This is one of the first instances I've had um, reading, and I've been, and I'm not just, I'm starting at the beginning going over this podcast, but I have been reading these Bronze Age issues before. And until I really, really looked at it this time for this, for the show, um, this is one of the first times where I realized 
uh, somewhat some of what like uh, Michael Bailey and Scott Gardner have mentioned on their Back to the Bins and Tales of the JSA pot, uh, podcast that um, Kurt Swan's art was just a little not quite, well I don't know they they're not they weren't harsh about it but um, I'm not going to be as I don't know hard on the guy with his art or whatever but and I don't no offense I'm not trying to be mean or say anything bad about Michael or Scott. Hi guys, how you doing? Love you guys. Um, not just I'm just kidding. Um, but the art from Kurt Swan doesn't look quite as exciting as this stuff. I mean, it's still I I still think it's pretty exciting art. Swan seems to be reinvigorated with this new uh, editorial shift and the new stories that they're doing. But this cover it just seems a lot more exciting than any of the stuff we see Kurt do it during the issue. That's all I'm saying on this. Um, but anyway, continuing the new adventures of Superman, um, uh, we start off uh, with a, the first story is How to Tame a Wild Volcano. story on this is written by Danny O'Neill. The art is by Kurt Swan and Murphy Anderson. And the editor is Julie Schwartz. Uh, we start off with this splash page, and it looks really cool. We see a, 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 a volcano, which is identified as Mount Boki. Uh, erupting in the background, we see all these natives running off um, with some really weird looking hairdos and Superman is literally sitting on a rock in the water uh, like he can't do anything and we don't know why uh, obviously because this is just the beginning of the story uh, and that rock looks like it's a little too close to the shore to actually be of you know for Superman to not you know be on the shore but anyway uh, we don't know why he's not helping but he's sitting there, and obviously this has something to do with the story. I think I thought it was a really cool uh, summarization of the story pretty well because I've read it and I know what happens, and does it is a pretty good tease. And like I even though it's not quite as exciting as the cover, it is really cool. There's a lot of stuff going on here. I thought Kurt Swan did, does a good job uh, between the natives running towards us, each one of them uh, to a certain point have not only. Uh, detailed faces but different looking faces jaw structure and everything looks a little different uh, we've got Superman sitting there we've got the detail of the volcano in the background with the smoke in the sky and the water and the sand and the rock and it, it just all looks really cool anyway we get into the story uh, we have Clark being called into Morgan Edge's office uh, telling him that there's a Volcano called Boki uh, that's been dead for about a hundred years and it's acting up and he want, and Clark asks if he wants him to go volunteer and help and he says no because obviously that wouldn't be smart um, he wants him to get tapes photos live television transmissions and the works and forget about helping Morgan Edge runs a business not a charity and tells him to move so he gets outside and Clark does one of the best lines I've read this month anyway. Um, Edge is the kind of man you don't like at first, but gradually you get to hate him. Um, and this is kind of cool because we get outside and we get a couple of gentlemen out there outside of the GBS slash Daily Planet building. Superman's ca uh, Clark's carrying a bag. Um, and we actually see a woman that looks like she's wearing some kind of um, outfit. Uh, I, I don't know the actual term and I apologize, uh, but it looks like something that would be worn in the Middle East. Very 
does a very good job of covering her body and could cover her face, although we do see her face. But anyway, in a deserted alley, Clark switches to Superman and flies off towards Bogey. Mere moments later, and halfway around the world, Superman flies over the volcano to see that it is, in fact, uh, getting ready to go off. However, he hears some cannon fire and flies off to see gunboats shooting at um, unarmed natives in canoes trying to escape from the volcano. So he catches a couple of the shells and lets one or two hit him in the chest as he goes to land to find out why they're shooting. He meets a gentleman named. Boise Harker, who owns the, the bay and that whole island, and who apparently is overcome with greed and will not let the natives leave because he's enforcing the contract that those people signed um, to work on his plantation. When Superman tries to plead with him about the fact that the volcano is about to blow, he says, nonsense, it's a little danger. There's no danger, it's just a little smoke and ash is all. And apparently he believes anyway that by rights he can kill those people if he has to get if he has to in order to get them to go to work. So he tells Superman that if he sets just one toe on his property, he'll have the law on Superman. So Superman now has to decide how he can save the islanders without touching without entering the quote unquote little domain. Um, so, immediately, to save the day, he sets up the camera because he figures he's got two hours before it actually erupts. So he sets up his camera and equipment, switches to Clark, and begins his newscast. And I'm going to get more into that about the newscast in a minute. But anyway, he starts doing the newscast, uh, changes, moves the camera to zoom in on the um, geyser coming out of the volcano, and switches to Superman and flies off pointing out to us that he's got some he's made some alterations to the gear so he can control the camera by remote control which he has cleverly hidden in his, on his belt buckle and he's got a microphone around his neck uh, so that he can continue to talk as Clark Kent while he flies around I'll get back to that in a minute meanwhile back in the Death Valley Desert uh, we see the sand creature slowly lumbering around uh, and all of a sudden he just stops mid-step lifts his arms into the air and kind of lifts off wobbly at first but soon gaining speed and composure and streaks off towards Boki Island at that same instant Superman has decided that while he can't attack Boki directly he can get to it from underneath by tunneling through the floor which, as everyone knows, is one of the favorite Superman tricks of comic book writers, is to have him tunneling. So he heads underground, plows through, and decides, you know, if he tunnels, he can release the pressure somewhere else and prevent Bokeh from erupting. Um, and he actually notes that he's, this is hard work even for him, and uh, even makes a noise, uh, sound in the thought balloon anyway, uh, to make it sound like he's actually putting some effort into this. And uh, using his x-ray vision, he could see where he has to go. But to, in the process of doing this tunneling, the sand creature flies overhead, making Superman weak and dizzy and deciding he needs to get above the water as soon as he can before his all of his powers go, go down and he drowns. 
and he lands on a rock and we get a similar image to what we saw in the splash of Superman sitting on a rock with the volcano going, working like crazy behind him except instead of us seeing the natives running towards us we just see a couple of them pointing at it there is a note that of course green kryptonite is gone so Superman can't figure out what made him weak and suddenly the rock he's sitting on is blasted by cannon fire again and it turns out it's Harker um, pointing out that that rock is still part of his property and gives him and says that this is a warning shot and gives him one last chance to leave before he brings the law on him so Superman takes off again tries to figure out what he's gonna do but just it's it's kind of hard because he can't obviously move the natives because he can't touch the ground and it apparently touching the ground also in, involves touching the volcano and that's still a no-no so he can't even knock out the volcano so he starts flying around trying to figure out and decides that uh things are get it's getting close and if things come to worse he's uh just gonna have to take the consequences because there's a moral law that is above some man-made laws. Um, as he appears to be getting ready to do something that is just going to involve him going down and taking care of things, uh, a plane on fire uh, starts sputtering around and Superman spots it and goes to catch it. And uh, the crew inside can realize that they can relax because Superman saves them and about Superman takes, grabs the plane and flies it off to a distant island um, about 10 miles away and once the crew leaves the plane we find out that there are a delegation from the United Nations coming to observe Harker and uh, tell Superman that within the hour the UN is expected to declare the area a state of emergency and which will allow planes and ships to evacuate the islanders regardless of uh, Harker's law uh, of the law and Harker's uh, contract. However, Superman estimates that now that the volcano is only about 20 more minutes before it erupts. And then the pilot mentions that then uh, they'll, if they only have 20 minutes, those islanders are only are going to be as dead as we almost were when we ran into a storm. Superman gets a stroke of an idea with that with that comment and finds out where the storm was uh, turns out it's about 80 miles to the south so Superman flies off at super speed and finds that it's the biggest rain cloud he's ever seen and could be exactly what the doctor ordered spinning around the flat the cloud at super speed he's able to direct the cloud over Boki with the rising heat from the volcano hitting the cool air around the clouds uh, Violent thunderstorm, uh, well, not really violent, but yeah, it's actually pretty violent. There's lightning and thunder and everything, but uh, a violent thunderstorm erupts, uh, pouring rain down on the island, the volcano, and everything, which helps is going to cool off the volcano and delay the eruption, hopefully long enough for the UN to get their rearing gear. Superman starts flying back to the camera, uh, towards his camera gear, so that he can cover what's happening, uh, so that Edge doesn't get too upset. Uh, but first he tries to treat himself to a shower bath since he's gotten pretty dirty the last few hours. As he does that, he f starts feeling weak again, just happens to look up and notices the sand creature, calling it a th the thing. And he realizes that's what's causing him to get dizzy. A few thousand feet below that, we see Harker and his ship 
the rain is just pouring down at this point uh, with puddles all over his, the boat he's on. They see ships coming to uh, quote-unquote steal his workers, uh, so they're getting ready to fire their cannons on these ships. Parker is just about to order the fire command when Superman crashes down into the weapon, breaking the cannon, of course. Um, unfortunately, this was an uncontrolled flight. Just Superman happened to be lucky enough to land on the cannon. Uh, Harker orders his men to attack Superman. Superman, kind of in a daze, just kind of stands up and tries to figure out what's going on. And what and what I think is one of the funniest scenes of this book, and one of the funniest scenes maybe in O'Neill's whole run on this on the book. While Superman is standing there trying to figure out what just happened and how he wanted to take a quick shower, apparently he forgets about. In this instance, anyway, he seems to have forgotten about the creature, but he blacks out and realizes that he fell in the boat. While he's doing this, the men are running up and trying to punch Superman. One guy tries to punch him in the chin with a SWAT sound effect, uh, but apparently that hurts. And while he's reacting in pain, the, another guy uh, kicks him in the butt uh, with a sound effect of kick. And while he's uh, hurting in his foot's hurting, and while the other gentleman's face is hurting, or fist is hurting, Harker decides he's going to take down Superman, and he rams him headfirst with a bit, which apparently knocks him out. Although we don't actually see that, because the next image we see is Clark on TV, uh, stating, uh, doing his newscast, pointing out that Brokey Island is being evacuated uh, quickly and in good order. Harker is undoubtedly going to stay on trial in an international court of law. And we see that his head is all kinds of bandaged and is being led away by naval officers. Um, Pokey is apparently expected to erupt in about an hour and was delayed by the storm. Although he doesn't credit Superman for it, he just says it was an unexpected storm and that the Islanders should be safe by the time it goes off. Then, with the newscast concluded, Clark stands there looking at the volcano, realizing that there is something loose on Earth can cause him a lot of weakness. Uh, but that he has no idea what it is and fears he may be powerless to stop it. And meanwhile, inside the volcano, we see the sand creature laying on a rock, unaffected by the heat. And slowly, his, his face, which had no features to it before, starts to look like a certain man of steel. And at the bottom, we get a blurb. What startling influence will this thing have next on Superman's life? You'll be amazed by the answer in next issue's full-length novel, The Sinister Scream of the Devil's Harp. And um, wait, I do have a few notes on this issue uh, going through this <clears throat> real quick. When we see Edge send Clark off to cover the eruption, super, uh, literally he goes outside, changes to Superman. Why he couldn't do that in, a, in one of the storerooms or something inside the building is beyond me. But he had to go outside and use an alley to change, flies off. Literally, we see him fly off. Now, it mentions it's half a world away. We know it's a Pacific island. Metropolis is traditionally depicted as being an East Coast city. So we see Superman fly all the way to Boki, meet up with Harker, talk to him, set up his stuff, and in what seems, unless the time is just not going right or we've missed something, in what seems to be maybe 10, 15 minutes, half hour at the most, suddenly Clark is on the island. Uh, with his, starting his broadcast about Mount Boki. Now, I would think that that would kind of mess up the whole secret identity thing because of the fact, well, how did, how did Clark get there that fast? Granted, at this during this time, it's noted that Superman is, or, sorry, that Clark is 
a friend of Superman's, so maybe he could use the excuse that he got Superman to fly him out there. I don't know, but in any event, that's what uh, that's what it seems to happen. And also something about that microphone on his belt on on his neck uh, that we get to later. It's kind of weird how I don't know how that's supposed to work because it's on his neck. We see him flying at what basically looks like super speed. Shortly after that, he's is swimming through the water to try to make another tunnel for the uh, pressure to, I guess, quote-unquote, exhaust from. Um, and I did air quotes there. I don't know why because you guys can't see that. But anyway, um, I don't know why he was uh, – how that's going to work because I would think that the microphone – just in my brief experience with microphones for this podcast, um, first of all, I would think the microphone would pick up the air flying around them. And also, not only might be shorted out by the water – but also wouldn't work very well under there. So hopefully the, po the his podcast, hopefully his report was finished by the time he tried to do the underwater trick. Second, when, it, when, Superman, when Superman first arrives, uh, he notes that it looks like there's about two hours. So he does his new, newscast. Once he f is finishing that and starts flying off, we see, we, go, we switch to the sand creature who is walking along, suddenly just leaps off and flies towards Bokeh. And what seems to be that same instant, we see Superman preparing to do his little water trick. And in the time that that works, well, we see the creature show up there really fast, which is possible because it's, if he's got any Superman super speed or something, that could work. But he goes, sits down, gets shot at, flies off again, uh, saves the plane, uh, and we don't cut away from Superman at all. But saves the plane, lands it, and all of a sudden he's only got 20 minutes. So somehow either this took really long the the pacing of this issue just really is not doing too going too well. I I don't know maybe it's O'Neill's fault, but yeah, the pacing it just leaves something to be desired in this issue. Um, another thing I know I wanted to note uh, the close-ups of Clark Kent both during his newscast at the, near the beginning and his newscast at the end he looks kind of old. There's some extra lines on his face. Um, now, granted, I know uh, I, I've read it uh, in the book. Uh, well, I don't have it right in front of me, so I can't tell you what it's called, but it's basically um, a, a, a book. Basically, it's kind of a biography of Kurt Swan. And in there, it's noted that Kurt kind of wanted to make Superman a little older for this part because uh, it's kind of moving on to the next part of his career. Uh, however, the editors didn't like that, and the powers to be didn't like it, so he had to scale it back a little bit. I don't know if that's part of what Kurt was doing here, or if maybe it's just kind of left over from the action story where it's taking place in the future and he is older, but Clark looks kind of old in the close-ups. Now, granted, I, um, he looks fine in, on page 15 where he's looking off at the, mount, at the volcano getting ready to erupt. He looks fine there. Uh, but this close-up right before that panel four looks like he just looks really old. Now, but again, uh, the suit he's wearing—they've um, given it some—they've given some different colors to the outfit, but it kind of looks like his old suit from before the bronze, uh, the pre-bronze age, so the Silver Age suit uh, that he actually will eventually go to in the Bronze Age again. But um, I don't know, it just kind of looks like he uh, Swan kind of drew the old suit and then they colored it different. But anyway, 
Um, and I like the continuing evolution of this sand creature. Uh, the first issue, uh, last issue, obviously, we saw him take shape for the first time. And this time, we not only see that he can fly and has some of the shape of Superman, but now his facial features are taking shape. So we can only imagine what will happen next issue, although some of us probably know already. Um, I don't want to ruin it for those who either don't have the issues or haven't read them yet. So I'm not going to mention that now. Now there's a backup story, uh, The Fabulous World of Krypton. We get another installment of that. Uh, the title is Prison in the Sky. The story is written by E. Nelson Bridwell, and this time the art is done by Kurt Swan. Solo. That's right, in a rare occurrence. Kurt Swan is inking his own story. So, um, like last time, uh, we're doing another mental tape of Journal of Jor-El. And we find out that if, uh, a few years ago, in fact, it was the second of E-Orcs in the year 9995. It's called Council Day, which is where they celebrate the uh, election of a new member to the Science Council, which, of course, we know eventually Jor-El will become part of but he wasn't yet. They did a planet-wide pictocast, which is like a TV broadcast for us, um, showing uh, the, what you want to call it, the election process. Uh, basically what they did is they had, they've narrowed it down to two people, uh, a man named Ken Dahl and another one, another gentleman named Tron Et. Uh, Ken Dahl, apparently uh, this is his last chance because of his age. And, um, so his uh, and both of them are going to demonstrate their latest invention, and that will decide or help them help to decide who will be on the science council. So Ken Dahl does his first, uh, fires off a small missile that includes tracking computers that will tell us where it lands. Uh, rather quickly, the missile seems to vanish from their star system, and tachyon tracers reveal that it has materialized. Uh, in star system 292 which is 17 light years away and it does this in only about 50 seconds basic uh to be more precise 49.8 seconds after the after it was shot off um and he says that he's con concocted a warp fuel using some very rare elements but in two or three years he hopes to have enough to send manned probes to other stars so then tronette does his uh presentation and has, uses a gun to dissolve a cloud uh, the beam which he calls the dissolver beam uh, makes a makes contact with the cloud and causes a rainbow effect which if you ask me looks like a really ugly rainbow it's basically uh, looking at this the outer edge is purple followed by green followed by a light blue then a darker blue and then orange to yellow in the center so I mean, there's no red, yellow, uh, I don't know, it's not, it's not a very nice looking rainbow. Uh, but anyway, then the cloud disappears without any harmful radiation fallout. And there's my dogs in the background. I think my wife just came home from the meeting she went to at church. In any event, uh, the head of the council states that um, it's now time for the citizens of Krypton to vote uh, using their vote projectors. They are to fire a beam into the sky, and if it, they vote, want to vote for Kendall, it's supposed to be a blue circle, and if they prefer Tronet, it's supposed to be a green square. And by almost 500 million votes, Tronet defeats Kendall and is elected to the Science Council. Um, immediately, upon being sworn in, 
uh, Ken, uh, Tron Ed decides that he uh, makes a proposal uh, that the prisons on Krypton are running out of space and are overcrowded and that they want to use his matter dissolver to eliminate condemned criminals. However, the rest of the council starts to disagree with him, saying that it's barbarous and inhuman. Of course, they're not going to vote on it until the next meeting. In the meantime, they will issue a call for other solutions to the whole prisoner problem. So at the next meeting of the Science Council, Jarrell uh, is granted the opportunity to, to present his solution. And when I first saw this, I figured, oh, Phantom Zone. But no, this is before that. Uh, he's discovered a, uh, apparently he has discovered a suspended animation gas. His idea is to place uh, the popu prison population in a long sleep inside the space capsule and brought back when their sentences are up. Furthermore, he's done some more experiments indicating that when a person's breathing and other processes are suspended in zero gravity, uh, it's possible to brainwash them. So his proposal is to sus uh, put them under suspended animation gas, send them up into space, and then brainwash them and to rehabilitate the criminals so that they're good citizens once they, once they come back. So the council approves this, and with the help of Jack Sir, uh, who you may have heard of, he's we know him as a as a Phantom Zone villain, but back in these days he wasn't quite there yet. Um, he helps design a prototype prison satellite with Jarrell, and on New Year's Day of 9996, which is kind of uh, fitting considering this is my first podcast of the New Year, um, a life-term prisoner has volunteered to be the test subject, and they decide that this is a good um, idea. Uh, his name is Nali Ilv, and he belongs to a criminal combine and has refused to identify its leader. So they believe that the, you know, uh, rehabilitation will allow them to find out who the leader is. Inside the satellite, Jorel administers the gas and the rocket is launched. And in 73 days, um, he should be, he will be returning to Earth, to, I'm sorry, to Krypton. Uh, day before it's supposed to come back, they get a weird call from Glacial City. Uh, saying that they've lost track uh, track of the prison capsule. A little bit later, in the, uh, the Valtho tracking station, um, they get a report that the prison capsule passed over on schedule, and we see what appears to be the first instance that I can remember of a black man on Krypton. And so the capsule lands, uh, thanks to the controls of under Jaxer's control. Uh, and when the convict uh, when it lands, the convict burst out. And promptly punches Jorel in the face, knocking him out, and leaps away like a like a quote unquote sprinter bug, um, almost as if he was a Superman. So uh, later that day, he used uh, this criminal Ilv uses his newfound powers to rob monetary deposits and supply houses and banks. And uh, it looks like it's all Jorel's fault. Laura, uh, watching it on a vidcast or a pictocast, sorry, uh, Jorel and Laura, or uh, Laura points out that it shouldn't be uh, Jorel's fault because it's not because you know technically it isn't. The guy just somehow gained powers in space, but Jorel suddenly realizes that it isn't his fault, and he has to get over to that to that depository fast. So. Grabbing his own his anti-gravity belt from, that we saw last issue, he flies off, 
and uh, as Ild is flying away with, I don't know what they are, they look like Twinkie cakes or hot dogs, uh, but when he flies, uh, yes, he's flying away from the depository, Jarrell flies in and socks him to the jaw, knocking him out. When we uh, when it looks like Jarrell has these power has the same powers, Jarrell has figured out that he had an anti gravity belt, like the one that Jarrell has, and his powers um, actually came from the fact that he was able to decrease and increase his weight. Um, when the guy asks how he found this out, uh, he realizes uh, Jarrell explains that while in suspended animation, a man doesn't need to breathe. In fact, he doesn't breathe. Uh, he needs a stimulate to activate his lungs, like a newborn baby does. Yet, the guy was breathing unconscious as soon as the ship landed, which doesn't make sense. So that also means that he's not actually Nally Ilv. Turns out it's his brother, Ed Ilv. That's right, a twin brother named Ed. Uh, apparently his leader blasted Nally's capsule with, a, with the matter dissolver gun, uh, destroying the ship, and then sent up a duplicate ship, somehow, with him in it, to make it look like Jarrell's experiment had failed. But this guy doesn't have the same compunction that Nelly Ilv had about not telling anyone who was the leader of the crime combine uh, because he points and reveals that it is in fact Tronette and that he wanted the death penalty in order to do away with the convicts who know too much about him. Confronted by this, Tronette goes ahead, breaks down, and confesses that it, he did in fact uh, join the council in order to get the uh, to initiate this death penalty, um, and to get on the council, he used plans of a disintegrate blah, disintegrator weapon invented by uh, a former crime chief named Vassur, and who is actually the grandfather of Jaxer. Then, uh, and then once he was a counselor, he had access to all the files of all the inventions, including Jarrell's anti-gravity belt, and that's how. We, um, Ed Ilv got that. Uh, so after Tronet is ex uh, expelled from the council, uh, a new election is held and Candell wins this time. And again, they decide they're going to experiment with Jarrell's uh, plan for rehabilitation by using suspended animation gas to knock out Tronet, sending him off into space and working on the brainwashing. And this time, uh, Tronette's been sentenced to 25 years, which is kind of short if you ask me, considering he basically killed a guy. But anyway, uh, in 25 years he'll come back and should be good as new. And of course we end with the quote, So Jarrell became a quote-unquote superhero and a crook catcher on Krypton, just as his son Superman was destined to become on Earth. It's a pretty cool short story. I think uh, Kurt Swan's art... <sighs> It's hard to explain. In some ways, I like it a lot more than when he is inked by other people. But in other ways, I don't like it as much because his inks are a little looser, so it looks a little more sketchy. Uh, it's not. It doesn't look like it's as quite as finalized as when, like, oh, I don't know, Murphy Anderson inks it. Uh, but overall, it's it's really, the artwork I thought was really good. Um, the only really I only have two notes on this. Uh, uh, on page two, again, they had that ugly rainbow. Yuck. And then uh, on page four, uh, we do see Jaxer again as a good guy, um, who apparently doesn't know about his uncle or grandfather, who's a bad guy. I also notice uh, they're sending rockets up like crazy now, uh, 
in this issue, when last issue, the council had just cut funding for their space program. So I guess at some point between the two issues, they decided, hey, let's give them more money. So that's a cool thing. Um, so that's it for Superman. Uh, really cool issue. Uh, definitely one you're going to want to get if you can find it. it probably is going to be pretty expensive. Uh, but like I said, um, and I don't know if I mentioned this because I mentioned I was going to do this and I keep forgetting to. Um, World's Finest 200 was reprinted and Showcase presents Robin the Boy Wonder Volume 1. But the Superman uh, 234 has been reprinted actually just once. Whereas the last issue was reprinted numerous places, uh, almost as often as Action Comics number one, it seems. Uh, this was has only been re reprinted one time in Kryptonite Nevermore, the hardcover that Superman or Superman, the DC put out a couple years, uh, back about a year and a half ago is when it came out, and um, which is it's actually a really weird reprint. It's a hardcover book, and literally they basically just scan the issues. They don't recolor them or anything like that. They basically just rescan the issues so it looks like basically what the pages look like here. Uh, again, that's only going to be the first story. Uh, the backup story, the, uh, the Prison in the Sky, has not been reprinted. So, unfortunately, we uh, don't see that again. Um, and I apologize for not mentioning the, those things before. I meant to do that last episode or not asked that well last episode too I didn't do it there either um, I will go ahead and tell you now that Superman 233 has been reprinted in Superman from the 30s to the 70s Superman from the 30s to the 80s Superman in the 70s the Millennium Edition version of Superman 33 which I believe reprinted the whole issue that came out about 2000 uh, the Superman greatest stories ever told volume 2 and of course the kryptonite nevermore hardcover so like I said, it's been reprinted almost as often as the other. And looking at this, yes, it was in fact uh, Gorel's Jor-El's Jor Golden Folly from last issue was in fact reprinted in that Millennium Edition. It was also reprinted in the World of Trypt Krypton Trade, and also in the Best of DC number 40. Which so that's it for for this issue of Superman. A long time ago, in a galaxy far, far away, a great adventure took place. I'm going to regret this. This is ridiculous. Only a laser sword fight. Star Tours announces the boarding of the Endor Express, non-stop star speeder service to the moon of Endor. All passengers, please prepare for immediate boarding. No! Cannot get your ship out. <laughs> Lando Calrissian is a positive role model in the realm of science fiction fans. Lando Calrissian. Star Wars. Monthly Mondays. Available the first Monday of every month at 2TrueFreaks.Libson.com.
We would be honored if you would join us. While attending a demonstration in radiology, student Peter Parker was bitten by a spider which had accidentally been exposed to radioactive rays. Through a miracle of science, Peter soon found that he had gained the arachnid's powers and had, in effect, become a human spider. Stan Lee presents... Spider-Man, Spider-Man, does whatever a spider can. Spins a web, any size, catches seeds, just like flies. Look out, here comes the Spider-Man. Welcome to Amazing Spider-Man Classics, where every month I and some friends will be discussing every book, every guest appearance, and every cameo we can find of our favorite web slinger, The Amazing Spider-Man. Are you tired of arguing over whether Ben Riley should have taken over the webs? Do you grow weary of the brand new day with all of its controversy? Then return with us to the early days. Return with us to the classics. Amazing Spider-Man Classics at Amazing Spider-Man. Dot Libsyn dot com. To him, life is a great big pain. Wherever there's a pain, you'll find a Spider-Man. Boys and girls, your attention, please. Presenting a new exciting radio program featuring the thrilling adventures of an amazing and incredible personality. Faster than a speeding bullet. The Thrilling Adventures of Superman, a journey through the golden age of the Man of Steel in comics, radio, and film. Available at GreatCrypton.com Hi, my name is Billy Hogan, host of the Superman Fan Podcast, which explores the world of Superman and the many creators who have added to his legacy over the decades. Episodes will feature creator biographies, or highlight some of their top stories they have created as well as their top characters. Other episodes will feature topics appropriate to the holiday or the time of the year. For instance, Valentine's Day will feature stories about the women in Superman's life. April Fool's Day will feature some of the bizarre Superman Silver Age stories or some of the imaginary stories that have been published. Halloween will feature some of the scary Superman stories or some of his strange transformations, and, of course, some of the Christmas Superman stories. The website can be found at supermanfanpodcast.mypodcast.com. The blog is supermanfanpodcast.blogspot.com, and you can send email to supermanfanpodcast at gmail.com. I also have a spoiler-free comic book review blog of the titles I read every week, which can be found at mypolllist.blogspot.com, and you can send email about this blog to mypolllist at gmail.com. And now we're going to move on. Uh, we've got Action Comics number 397. And... Uh, again, uh, to recap from what happened last issue, we found out that it's an imaginary day in the 1990s. Uh, Jimmy Olsen now runs WMET, which is, uh, 
owns the Daily Planet. Lois doesn't actually say if she's retired or not, but she's married a, a man that looks just like Clark Kent and has a son. Perry White has died. We don't know about any of the other characters in the Superman universe. Uh, but Superman has apparently lost most of his powers. Uh, he can no longer fly. Don't know about his invulnerability. He doesn't have the super speed anymore. He can't even walk. He's in a wheelchair. He's forced to beg for money. And because uh, he's actually taking care of some people, of some, of some, well, at least two, three, four people. I don't know. It looked like three sets of hands, I believe it was, last issue. Um, the, and he's living in a condemned building because he can't get to the Fortress of Solitude. And uh, basically, the only power he really has are his vision powers. Uh, he can he has his telescopic X-ray and heat vision were uh, shown last time, and um, that's where we are now. Uh, at the end of last issue, uh, Superman went begging in front of the daily of the former Daily Planet building. Uh, Jimmy flipped a quarter at him, and it popped out of the cup. He went to reach down for it, but the blanket he was wearing. Uh, because his previous outfit had been messed up due to an experiment to re return his powers to him, uh, he was forced to wear his Superman costume. And the blanket and shawl he was wearing to cover up the costume uh, fell, uh, fell off while he was reaching for the quarter. And people saw that he was Superman and started chasing after him like a mob. So this issue opens up with uh, just a, basically a short recap of the fact that the quarter fell in the popped out of the cup. Uh, this time we do see that Jimmy recognize is one of the people to recognize that it's Superman and that he wants to get the story behind the whole wheelchair bit. Meanwhile, Superman wheels off, and it's kind of amazing. These people seem to be running, and he's keeping pretty far ahead. So either he's still got some strength in those old man arms of his, even though he doesn't have super strength, or he still seems to have some of his super speed. In any event, Superman is rushing through the city, trying to get away, and as he keeps going, he passes more and more people, which means the mob that's following him gets bigger and bigger. Uh, he wishes he was it was like the old days where he could literally just fly off at the speed of light, uh, but unfortunately that's not working. Uh, finally, he's going down the street and goes over some puddles, and which gives him the idea of using his heat vision to create a cloud of mist uh, lining the followers so that he can get away. Uh, long afterwards uh, he makes his way to the abandoned apartment building that he was in last issue and as he's finally you know putting away his dark his sunglasses and everything uh, there's a thump or a kind of a knock on the door and it's Jimmy and they have a short reunion with a hug uh, Superman explains what happened to him apparently after a mission at some point in the uh, future. Uh, he landed and tries to fly away, but finds that he can't. Um, he, he hopes it's just a temporary effect, but it turns out um, his other powers start dwindling too, and not only has his super strength vanished, but he's weaker than a normal human now and needs a cane to walk. Mentioning that um, reminds Jimmy that Clark Kent started using the cane about the same time, even though I'm not completely sure how he knew what time, since there's no definitive time explained in here. But Superman decides to go ahead and reveal, yes, Jimmy, uh, Clark Kent was his secret identity. Each day he grew weaker until the 
Uh, now, I like how they word this. The owner of the company which bought out the Daily Planet called me on the carpet. And this is Morgan Edge. If you look at the image, it's Morgan Edge. Looks like Morgan Edge has Morgan Edge's little uh, cigarette holder and everything. That's Morgan Edge, uh, even though they don't name him. Maybe the writer didn't know about exactly the names or anything, but Kurt knew what they looked like. I don't know. Anyway, uh, so looks like Morgan Edge anyway. Uh, fires Clark. Tells him he's washed up. Hoping, still hoping his condition was temporary. Uh, he used super, he used his super robots for his missions, but one by one they were turned to scrap. Uh, they would be called away on an emergency, not needed because of some automated technology being used. And then uh, the the example they show is one of his robots got struck by lightning, and literally kind of messed up. So all the robots have become slag. And, which is a transformer term, sorry. And Superman eventually starts getting kicked out of all the little uh, apartments and halfway houses that he's been staying in because now he doesn't have money for rent because, you know, he's not working. Um, Jimmy asks why he didn't see a doctor, but he responds that Earth's finest specialists know little about his powers. Uh, he didn't apply for welfare because he didn't want to destroy uh, people's faith in their idol which is Superman. Uh, Jimmy pleads with him why, I mean, he had friends who would give their lives for him. Why didn't he ask any of them for help? And he says that his reason was that there's nothing worse than a has-been mooching off his friend, which seems kind of clumsy to me, but whatever. And also he didn't want his enemies to gloat. Uh, then Jimmy starts, uh, uh, you know, kind of chiding him about the fact that he's begging from strangers, whatever happened to his pride, and the people um, hiding in the closet reveal themselves to be Dr. Carl Reynolds and his wife, who is never given a name, the poor woman. And they've contract they were using they were experimenting with cures for leprosy and the plague, but were infected with a mutant virus even deadlier than any of any known disease. So super and so Superman offered to quarantine them and promised to feed them and was begging in order to get them food. And so Jimmy decides, you know what, I'm gonna help you out. I'm gonna take you to a specialist I know, and it's a neurologist who starts running some scans of Superman while asking about how he lost his powers. We find out that um it happened shortly after some uh, troubling times he'd been having for a few weeks his missions he'd be going into these missions to save people but somehow some invention some technology uh, created by man um, was making him kind of pointless the examples shown are Superman going to save a floating a uh, liner that looks like it's going to um, uh, sink uh, but they have a flotation collar that will keep it afloat until they can get to port uh, there's a flood, but uh, a cryogenic ray freezes the water before, into a giant dam to save the town. Uh, Superman tries to respond to a pollution alert by creating, uh, spinning around the smoke at super speed to draw the smoke away. But it turns out it's actually part of an experiment for a new self-decontaminating chemical that they're testing. And uh, the smoke goes up and uses the sunlight behind it. Um, let's try that again. The smoke is actually um, uses the sunlight to create a jewel-like rain um, 
and the chemicals uh, are become an instant fertilizer to make the crops grow before their eyes and we do see it growing and uh, the scientists in a half-joking manner saying says frankly with our scientific advances who needs you Superman uh, soon afterwards when he tries to take off he can't fly and therefore we see um, he believes it's a red sun effect caused by the uh, by that cloud but it turns out that's not it at all uh, and then he reveals that everything has gone except for supervision, super hearing, and vulnerability. And the doctor thinks he fig has figured out what's going on and believes that basically what happened is Superman still has his powers. Uh, he's really actually fine, but it's a mental thing. Uh, it, he's suffering from what's called panic syndrome. Uh, when he feared that the, no long, that the world no longer needed him or his powers, uh, he found himself to be just completely he felt helpless, which made him helpless. And um, but Superman gets frustrated because uh, if that's the truth and he has his powers, why can't he use them? Uh, says the doctor doesn't have the answers. Uh, tells Jimmy to forget about him and leaves up. And uh, leaves and pretty much goes to wallow in his own self-pity. Uh, he heads back to his flat and starts doing some laundry and is using his heat vision to do that but lost in thought he forgets to control the heat vision and it starts a fire. He thinks they're going to be okay because the uh, fire sensors in the lamp post nearby uh, should be able to detect the fire and send out the fire department. However, uh, since the, those buildings are supposed to be abandoned, uh, all they do is uh, surround the buildings with foam to prevent the flames from spreading and decide that the fire would be a cheaper way to demolish those buildings since they're supposed to be demolished anyway. So since they're not helping, Superman realizes he's got to do something. So uh, he realizes there's nothing else he can do except try to save them. So he has to try and in a in, in a page that makes me think of the John Williams Superman score we see him talk himself literally kind of like he's shouting telling him telling him or saying that they need Superman's help because the doctor and his wife are still there uh, and slowly he rises out of the chair stands up picks them up and flies them out of the building uh, once they reach safety though even though Superman has saved them from dying in the fire, uh, it turns out the doctor and his wife end up dying from their diseases anyway. So that's kind of sad. And uh, a little bit of irony. Uh, so he decides that he's going to bury them. He takes them to a mountain that is a mile high. Uh, seems to be another way to say Denver. But I don't know. Maybe Leo is just... I didn't do the credits on this. Huh. I'll get back to that. Uh, anyway. Um, anyway, uh, the mountain's a mile high, and there's no danger that their bodies will ever spread the contamination because he buries them in there, as well as inside, uh, looks like, rock caskets. Uh, he starts to fly back to Metropolis, but realizes that the world doesn't need him anymore. And he's now obsolete on Earth because... Uh, mankind is building a super civilization in the 1990s. Uh, so, without saying bye to anybody, 
he takes off and heads out into space looking for a world like the Earth he once knew, a world that still needs Superman. So, that's pretty good. I forgot to mention, and I apologize, uh, this story, the title of it was called The Secret of the Wheelchair Superman. The writer was Leo Dorfman. The art was by Kurt Swan and Murphy Anderson. The editor was Mary Boltonoff. And, of course, again, Superman was created by Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster. And this is Action Comics 397. came out in February of 71, released December 29th, 1970, so just after Christmas, just before New Year's. And it's got a nice-looking, a pretty cool-looking cover by Carmine Infantino and Murphy Anderson, which basically show, uh, basically, which actually does show Superman uh, feeling bad for himself in, a, in his wheelchair with the blanket falling off of him while two of his robots uh, lie there like scrap in a closet behind him. So it looks pretty cool. Not as cool as the Neil Adams covers, but that's just my opinion. Anyway, uh, on to my review of the issue. Um, pages 1 and 2, uh, we actually, uh, unlike last issue, we actually get to see some of the futuristic vehicles. And um, they have hover cars and stuff in the 90s. And it's kind of cool, but unfortunately, reading this 20 years after 1990 and 10 years after the end of the decade, or actually 11, um, It's kind of sad to see that we're not as far advanced as they hoped we would be. Um, also, like I mentioned, I, I did note that Superman does move fast in that wheelchair, like super speed. I mean, he's staying well ahead of these people. Not not too far ahead. Uh, I mean, they're still keeping up with him, but he's actually main, maintaining a good, I mean, a pretty quick speed. And the lines that Swan uses... Uh, to show his movement kind of looks similar to the lines he uses when he's used, when Superman has super speed. The only difference is he doesn't have a bunch of after images behind him. But uh, he's moving pretty quick for a spry old man that doesn't have super speed anymore. But anyway, on page three, um, he returns to that abandoned apartment. And I only mention this because I actually remember this from last issue. Uh, he shows up and says, No one would dream that I, who once owned the world's mightiest fortress, now delay it, live in this decaying slum. I believe he said a similar thing last issue. Uh, something to the effect about um, who would believe the man that, the, that someone like Superman, who was super powerful, now lives in this place when he used to have a fortress, and we see that the fortress has fallen apart. Uh, that was last issue, though. Uh, but yeah, so he, they kind of reiterated here, like, Maybe they didn't read last issue, but again, like I'm like um, like they used to say, every issue is someone's first. And um, uh, then we see that Jimmy has followed him, and I'm wondering how. Um, Superman literally uh, used created a mist to blind everyone, and then got away. So how did Jimmy follow him? Um, I don't know. It doesn't that doesn't make sense? But anyway, uh, page four uh, with the hug. It's kind of tender. But it's kind of a weird looking hug, um, but it, it's pretty cool that when they see each other, instead of just a handshake. I mean, they were you could tell that these guys were actually friends. Um, like I mentioned uh, when I, on the world's finest issue, uh, they were almost like partners in the world's finest book. They're more. They're. I mean, they are. They were truly were friends. So. After all this time of not seeing each other, uh, having them hug does make sense. Um, also, I think it's kind of weird 
we see uh, Superman, by the time when he's walking around with a cane and cl uh, crutches, uh, he's got his gray hair. Kind of looking like the Earth 2 Superman. However, Morgan Edge, or the guy who looks like he's Morgan Edge, doesn't look any different. I mean, he looks like the same as he does in the Superman issue that we that I just covered. So that's kind of weird. Um, but who knows? Uh, page 6, um, I think his excuse for not help, asking friends for help is kind of flimsy. Literally, yes, okay, human doctors might not know. But with all the files that Justice League has, I'm sure that Batman or somebody, or even the Green Lantern, could have gotten help. Uh, someone could have helped with that. With uh, Someone you know, along those lines could have helped him. But if they did that, they wouldn't have the story. And um, it is kind of sad that Dr. Reynolds gets a name, um, but his wife doesn't. She's just his wife. And on page seven, when we got the flashback, when he's mentioned, uh, telling the neurologist about what happened, um, as soon as I started reading it, I had an idea of what the problem was. I don't know if it's because I've just been listening to uh, J. David Weeder uh, talking about uh, the Up, Up, and Away story that was uh, put in the one year later Superman books, um, or what, but it just made sense that... Uh, this was all some kind of mental thing, especially since they were with a neurologist. And to a couple pages later, they actually say that. So I was like, I saw that happening. Although I was kind of thrown off a little bit by maybe the uh, smoke, that pollution smoke stuff. Uh, could have been doing some weird kind of filtering thing on the sun, but there wasn't enough of it going around to cause enough problems. Page nine, you know, I found it to be a little bit of irony that. Superman's depending on the fire department to save the day, but they don't because those are supposed to be abandoned anyway. So they don't think anyone's in there, so they don't bother. They just decide to let the buildings burn down. But on um, page 10, like I said, when Superman's standing up and talking himself and saying, they need Superman, it reminds me of this. I can hear the John Williams theme playing, especially like the part I play on my intro. Um, the part where I read at the end that he's Superman and where Superman says Superman, I can just hear the da 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 da, da when he's flying off. Uh, I don't know if that's just maybe that's just me, but that's what I saw or heard. Um, and it is sad that the doctor and his wife uh, die almost immediately as soon as they get out of the building. Uh, so it's like it's almost kind of pointless to Superman save them, but on the other hand, it did bring Superman back. So. It's almost like a sacrifice, but obviously these two people were merely just a plot point and not really characters we were supposed to care about. And um, I kind of felt bad for Jimmy because Superman le uh, Superman's kind of pissed at him uh, when he leaves the doctor's office. And Superman sits on top of a building, realizing, uh, remembering that the Earth doesn't eat him, decides to fly off into space. But he doesn't go say bye to Jimmy or thank him for you know his help or anything he just leaves so sayonara jimmy uh i also thought it was kind of funny that um this guy uh, uh modern well so if you want to call it modern but modern for the bronze age 1971 jimmy looks like he's late teens early 20s and so this is another 20 years after that so he'd be in his late 30s early 40s 
I, I just, it's kind of weird that he's still going by Jimmy. And I would think that by that point, uh, you know, especially since he owns a company, he'd be respected enough that he'd be James or Jim. But, you know, whatever. Um, now, now we have a backup story. And this is kind of weird because this issue, we actually have two 11-page stories. The, front, uh, the main story is the same uh, length as the backup story, uh, which is different than any of the other books we've gone over so far. And um, <clears throat> this act, actually, before I get to that, we actually have a letters column, the where the action is column. And we actually see that they are reviewing, or we have letters being written in uh, about the the issue I covered on my first uh, episode uh, with the super Superman meets Super Houdini and the day Superboy became Superman. I'm not going to go into it, um, but because I already covered the issue, but it is kind of cool to see that, um, that I'm actually moving along in this podcast. Uh, we got a nice little ad about DC exploding in 1971 uh, showing an issue of Adventure Comics presenting Supergirl and the cover to Batman and Batgirl and Detective. Uh, both of the those issues are supposed to hit in December 1931. I'm going to check the DC in just a minute, the DC Index site. Um, but again, that would be weird because if this issue came out on the 29th and the others are supposed to hit on the 31st, that's literally two days. Um, anyway, um, the backup is uh, co called an, uh, one of those untold tales of the fortress. Uh, we start off uh, with mention of Superman's fortress in the Arctic. And this is colored weird because it actually looks like it's brown instead of white. Like it's traditionally traditionally colored, uh, but we also point out uh, they also point out that it turns out. Did you know that the Man of Steel once built a stronghold in space disguised as a fiery meteor, or that long ago he had a citadel beneath the sea that was Superman's uh, submarine fortress, and that it had been deserted for years? But suddenly we see Superman uh, floating down to the to that fortress, and like his Arctic fortress, he uses a giant key to uh, open a big gold door. Uh, this key looks more like the traditional kind of skeleton kind of key or uh, one of those old school keys that uh, you see in like the old kind of buildings and houses. Um, and he flies in and finds out that uh, the Atomic Energy Commission um, has uh, found that there's trouble at the undersea dumping ground and they're paging for the submarine Superman. Um, and he has to head out to it and makes a mention that this may be how it is from now on. So we're wondering what's going on as we get to the title of Super Captive of the Sea, written by Jeff Brown, art by Kurt Swan and Murphy Anderson. Uh, again, the editor would be Murray Boltonoff, and Superman's created by Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster. Um, we see Superman streak to the scene, uh, finds out that some fishing nets snared the drums, and he better rescue them before they pull them back up to the surface. Um, and while he's doing that, Superman notices two shadows. It could be divers, but he can't worry about them now because he's got to free the drums. And he finally rips apart the net, and all of the drums start heading out. And he starts to, and he stashes them in a crevice. 
but one of the drums is still tangled in the net and is starting to be pulled to the surface and if there's a leak it could mean curtains for the fishermen I'd like to point out if there's a leak it also means uh, you know curtains for all the fish in the water anyway but whatever so Superman flies like a missile uh, to catch to get, to grab the drum uh, and his speed ends up sending him out of the water uh, and then kind of out of control looking at his pattern uh, we see him flip around and head back into the water um, and the boat, men, men on the boat say uh, Superman why did you do it the pink pollution has thrown you out of control get back beneath the surface so now we're left to wonder pink pollution what's that uh, so back to the story um, Superman, as he's heading back into the water, he mentions the oscillation effect. Uh, he forgot about the pink, the pollution cloud and its weird effect on his powers. Apparently, um, uh, he remembers how it started when Cape Kennedy scientists first noticed this pink cloud appearing out of nowhere, expanding rapidly in Earth's orbit. Um, they believe at first that it's space dust, but they want to interfere. Uh, but they fear it might interfere. Here it will interfere with their Venus, Venus shot launch. Uh, so they were going to alert Superman because no one else could save the day. Uh, Superman heads out to go check on it, but finds out his powers are uh, out of his control, and he splashes into the water. Uh, some boats go out there to warn him, um, but and uh, when they go to help him, they point out that it look according to their tracking devices. It indicates that the pink cloud affected his flight path from the moment he took off, which means that they might be able to find out where he took off from, aka the Daily Planet slash GPS building, aka, you know, Clark Kent. Anyway, um, so they say probably the best bet is for Superman to stay underwater, and so he does that, he does so, uh, hoping that Supergirl can help him when she returns from her mission. While he's underground, under the water, he keeps an eye out for Supergirl, but his telescopic vision reveals that Supergirl's also affected, uh, but she's in space, so instead of being able to come back to Earth, she's got to leave Earth for a while. Since it doesn't affect him down here, down in the water, Superman decides he's going to have to stay underwater for a while. Uh, till um, he's, uh, one of his monitors sp uh, spotted that the memorial bridge is starting to give away or give way it's cracking so he tries to figure out how he can help uh, out at the bridge we see what looks what appear to be two policemen I guess or park rangers or something uh, trying to figure out how they're going how the day can be saved since Superman can't help them uh, but they look down and see water boiling and suddenly out of that water uh, come two fiery beams uh, that lance upward and melt the bridge back together uh, welding them back together, sorry. Uh, but Superman has blasted it from under the water, and I think that's a pretty cool effect because we see the water boiling in reaction to his heat vision. Uh, heading off again, we uh, Superman again spots two shadowy figures. Uh, he goes after them but finds out they're just spider crabs. Um, we see um, apparently we've moved ahead a couple days, and Superman is watching a using his telescopic vision to watch a baseball game. Um, and then the next day we see him save a giant squid from a cable that had uh, a transatlantic communications cable. Um, 
And when he does that, uh, he sees those myst uh, two mysterious shadows again. He goes after them uh, to check them out, and it turns out they're stingrays. Uh, then one day, his monitors note a forest fire in, in the North Pacific. So there are redwoods going up in flame. He's trying to figure out how he's going to save the day when suddenly he realizes that he can use a sunken tanker to kick up a tidal wave just strong enough to put out the fire because it's near the coast, luckily. Uh, again, Superman spots the shadowy pair again, but finds out it's just electric eels, which seems to make sense to him even though they don't look like the shadows he saw. Uh, in an ocean grotto, Superman decides that he um, is going to figure out a way that he might be able to operate again in the upper world using ocean sand, using his heat vision to turn ocean sand into a flexible lead glass and molding the glass into his shape. And it would be a bendable glass so that he would be protected from the clouds. Um, but as he heads off into, uh, to try it out, uh, he hears, you're not going anywhere, and meets two what I can only describe is kind of like, look, they look like ancestors to Merman from the He-Man cartoon. Um, uh, and they're speaking to Superman using mental telepathy. And before he can do anything, um, to make sure that he obeys, they send, use a device to emit some kind of strange electronic web over him, which also um, emits a super force field and energy from a distant red sun basically knocking out his superpowers except for his invulnerability so he's able to survive under the pressures of the water uh, so he asks who they are they explain that they're from the planet Quar Q-U-O-R I'm calling it Quar which is a distant water world uh, they've been scanning Earth for years and decide that they want their own Superman so they're testing him to decide if he'd be successful on their planet. So they created the pink cloud to cover the Earth and uh, then caused some problems for Superman to solve while he was underwater. And during all his tests, he passed with flying colors. And uh, he, they were the two shadowy figures he saw, but they used their powers of instant metamorphosis to change their shape so that he would recognize them and so he asks them to demonstrate it for him because he doesn't believe it uh, so one of them changes into a seahorse but uh, but when they do that it causes that one guy to shrink uh, and so Superman asks for him to come closer so you can actually see him so this creature this guy goes through the into the net uh, right, right up to Superman's face and so Superman's like, incredible, you can get that small, can you do something bigger like a whale? So he's, so uh, the guy says, of course I can. Transforms into a whale, which not only kind of breaks the net, but also blocks the power of the rays from the device from affecting Superman, so he's able to escape. And using his super breath, he freezes the water around the two creatures, puts on his glass suit, uh, flies above the pink cloud, and throws it into space towards Quar, uh, throws the ice ball back towards Quar, mentioning that he's learned from other water worlds that freezing puts their aquatic life forms in suspended animation, so they should be cozy until they melt 
back on Quar. Uh, then using his super speed, he creates a cyclon cyclonic space storm to draw the gas away from Earth and allow him to be able to function again. And back in his Arctic fortress, Superman create uh, sets up his glass suit as a, like a statue as he and Supergirl wa uh, check it out, um, you know, and exclaim that it's happy to be home once more. And this is one of the. It's actually a fun little story, but it's not. But it's got a little, few things going on with it. Um, I've actually enjoyed this whole issue a lot more than I thought I would. Um, but um, my notes for this issue, or for this story, um, again, uh, we all know that the writer Jeff Brown is also Leo Dorfman. So, okay, I don't know why. I still don't understand why he's doing that for two, di uh, two different stories in the same book, but whatever. Um, on page four, we see that Supergirl's in space. It always seems like um, between what I've read between this issue and what I've read of future issues of the Bron in the Bronze Age, it seems like anytime Superman uh, is in a position where he needs Supergirl's help, Supergirl seems to always be off on some super secret mission in space. And it's almost like is Supergirl ever really on Earth, or does she, or does this college that she's going to in New Troy? actually on another planet. It's kind of weird. I don't know. Uh, page 7. The tidal wave he creates to put out the fire. Uh, granted, it's enough to knock out the fire, yes. Uh, but wouldn't it kind of flood the rest of the area too and cause problems like maybe mudslides and things? I don't know. I've never been in a tidal wave, but I would think it would be more uh, cause more harm than good. Uh, on page 9, uh, when we see the merman guy's uh, spaceship um his spaceship looks like a vehicle from he-man 2 or there i'm sorry because it's two guys their spaceship looks like a he-man vehicle too uh and i'm talking about the old school he-man cartoon from the 80s not the more recent one uh but it, it's just kind of weird that it also looks like uh an old he i, I don't know maybe and it, it, obviously he uh swan wasn't inspired by he-man because he-man's about 10 years away at least uh, at least for the toys and then even uh, about another three years for the cartoon to start. So, uh, and let's see, maybe the year before the cartoon is when they started the comics. So he wouldn't even be drawing He-Man stuff until like 81, 82. So I don't know how, it, it may, I don't know. Maybe the creators of He-Man were inspired by some of the stuff in this issue. Who knows? Uh, page 11, uh, he throws the ice ball, mentions it's going to melt on Quar. How does Superman know where Quar is? Um, I mean, granted, maybe he's been there, but this seems to be a planet of people he's never met before. So how would he know where their planet is? Uh, also, um, how do you cre how would one create a cyclone in space if there's no wind? I've been trying to wrap my head around that for a couple days now. I would think that you would have to have wind to create wind, and space is devoid of that. Also, when he's creating this super cyclone thing, it, uh, the way it's drawn anyway, it actually looks like he's pulling clouds and atmosphere off of, away from Earth to do so, which may explain the first question, or answer the first question, 
but it also looks like it's you know he's causing a lot of harm to earth i mean we literally see some of the clouds on earth it looks like they're just leaving and you know joining up being sucked up and to join the around the, this pink cloud it's kind of weird um something i noticed throughout the whole issue um he keeps seeing these shadowy figures um why couldn't he ever use his vision powers to see them i would think some telescopic and x-ray vision combo would uh, show him these that they're aliens instead of trying to you know speed up and catch up to them giving them plenty of time to switch to their other forms um also basically with shape-shifting powers um, i would think these guys could be their own superheroes and um wouldn't need to like kidnap superman uh it makes me wish that they had actually been watching you know keeping an eye on metamorpho instead of superman uh maybe they would have gotten it that you know realized that uh so that's it for the issues um and we're going to move on for the last part to mike's amazing world dc comics to check out some of the issues that were on sale in december of 1970 um First off, we see that uh, Forever People number one uh, was on sale. Uh, obviously, this is a Jack Kirby book introducing the Forever People. And uh, our first sight of Supertown. Um, and I have read that story. I do know that that story is repeat, uh, reprinted in The Greatest Superman Stories Ever Told. And uh, I believe we see Jimmy in that issue, too. And that's the first instance where I saw where you noticed well, other than Superman, or other than the Jimmy Olsen book, that all the images of Superman are, in fact, uh, inked by other people besides Jack Kirby. And, uh, again, like I just mentioned, uh, this book was reprinted in Greatest Superman Stories Ever Told, Jack Kirby's Forever People, uh, Jack Kirby's Fourth World Omnibus Volume 1, and the Countdown Special New Gods Number 1. Um, actually, though, on the cover, it looks like it looks pretty much like a Jack Kirby Superman, so maybe they let it slide for once. That's pretty cool. Um, also on sale this month, we have House of Secrets number 90, uh, Our Army at War number 228 featuring Sergeant Rock, uh, a Super DC Giant S22 uh, featuring the Top Guns of the West, Batman 229 featuring a new Robin solo story, uh, a flash issue which looks really cool uh i don't know the story uh but the cover is a neil adams cover and basically it's one of those um i don't know how to explain it apparently it looks like it might i'm guessing this is iris west flash is trying to pull her into i guess the real world and literally it looks like okay we got flash colored kind of realistically with the kind of cool shading that we also see on the Superman cover that this month, um, and behind him is a photograph, basically a photo image, colored weird because it's a photo, um, and someone who apparently I don't even remember. I know I read who that was, but I can't remember who it was now. I don't know. Uh, but anyway, uh, it looks like Flash is trying to uh, pull her into our world, uh, but there's a definite line about two-thirds of the way across the page where we see iris in a whole different looking outfit and it all looks very uh kind of line drawn like comic book slash animation ish and it looks like the future i don't know what's going on here because i've never read the issue but it almost looks like it's one uh, 
Maybe this is where we find out that Iris is from the future? Maybe? I don't know. Because uh, whether you know it or not, Iris is from the future. And Superman does put in a guest appearance in that issue. Um, so I guess I should have reviewed it. But since I'm not actually going through every time Superman makes an appearance, I don't have to. But yes, yeah, Superman is apparently makes at least a cameo in that issue. Um, next we have some more of those fun books like uh, Swing with Scooter number 32 so that's still going we have Binky 77 uh, let's see what else do we have any of the other Sugar and Spike number 94 um, and then we have some of the romance books we have Girls Love Stories number 157 Falling in Love number 121 Heartthrobs 130 uh, Young Romance 170 so love was a big thing back then still too. Uh, we have another uh, another quote-unquote big book. Uh, two looks like two uh, stories in one, two magazines in one. Uh, it's called G.I. Combat number 146. Uh, so uh, let's see we have Tales of the Un or no, it's not Tales of the Unexpected. It's just Unexpected number 123 which that covers that Dick Jared. No it's a Nick Cardi cover. That's a pretty cool looking cover. Uh, you see a guy, looks like he's in bed, uh, one arm's under his pillow, uh, both hands are trying to hold his blanket down, and he very much looks terrified, while a skeletal hand tries to pull off the sheet. It looks like, I'm guessing, death. That's kind of cool. Uh, Justice League of America, number 87. That looks pretty awesome. It's another Neil Adams cover. Um, and this involves something where King Batman is ordering the death of all the Justice Leaguers. Huh. Looks like something. Although he's laughing like he's Joker, so I don't know. But that should be something interesting. Uh, we got the World's Finest. We have All-Star Western, number four. Um, from, the Beyond, from Beyond the Unknown, number nine. Uh, Superman, Our Army at War, number 229. And which looks to be a reprint issue. Uh, since we already had our army at war in the in this month, uh, it looks like it's one of those 64-page giants. It looks like it's an all reprint issue, based on the fact that we have the Sergeant Rock's prize battle tales from the secret files of a Nazi war machine. Uh, we have the Witching Hour, number 13. Uh, new Gods, number one. Another new Jack Kirby book. Jack Kirby was going crazy at this point. I mean. He's already work, been working on Jimmy Olsen, and I don't think that's out this month. There's no Jimmy this month, but he's got New Gods and Forever People starting. Uh, so props to him. He was doing pretty good. Uh, we have a Brave and the Bull number 94, which actually features Batman teaming up with the Teen Titans. So I wonder if that had anything to do about, you know, uh, you know, Robin being his own guy against Batman. Uh, but we do have a constant. It looks like the Titans are holding all adults in a concentration camp. That's weird. We have Green Lantern number 82, which has Green Lantern and Green Arrow going up against the Harpies with another Neil Adams cover. Uh, we have Star Spangled War Stories uh, number 155. Uh, Adventure Comics 402 featuring Supergirl, which is the one I mentioned a little earlier. And according to this, it came out December 29th, the same day as the action issue. So who knows which one's real. Uh, Superman's Girlfriend Lois Lane, number 108. 
uh, looks like once again we're showing another wedding of Superman and Lois. And um, on this cover by Dick Giordano, which looks really cool, uh, we see Superman and Lois about to get married. Uh, and as the minister states, you know, if anyone knows just cause why Lois Lane and Superman may not wed, let them speak now or forever hold their peace. And we see the quote-unquote specter suitor. It's a guy in a suit with a tails and a top hat and a cane, but you can't see his body. So apparently the Invisible Man has a problem with Lois marrying Superman and also doesn't wear shoes. And then we have this cool issue, Detective Comics number 408, uh, which is um, called The House That Haunted Batman, with also a Batgirl story in the back called The Phantom Bullfighter, but the cover is looks real cool. It's kind of almost a comic book page in and of itself, but we see what looks like Batman holding Robin. He shouts Robin's name, and then we slowly see Robin look like he literally melts and turns to dust and in each panel we hear he, he goes what's happening to you and by the last by the time we get to you uh super uh superman batman's literally kneeling on the ground with sand or dust uh running through his fingers his cape spread out uh and robin has turned to ashes so that's what was happening in december of 1970 next month we actually get to uh, the point where we hit January 1971 for reels. And um, thank you for listening. Y'all have a good day. Thank you for listening to Superman in the Bronze Age, hosted by Charlie Niemeyer. You can write to the show at umbc81 at gmail.com. You can subscribe to the show two ways, via the RSS feed at supermaninthebronzeage.blogspot.com or via iTunes. Also, if you like this show, make sure you check out the blogs and podcasts listed in the recommended sites section. And be sure to check out my reviews of other classic Superman comics at www.supermanhomepage.com. Superman and all related characters are copyright DC Comics. Also, any images or music used for this blog or podcast is purely for entertainment only. I do not make any money from this show. Thank you again for listening, and God bless.